Welcome everyone to another Subi podcast. Today I've got the CEO and founder Yet Sue of Anamoka Brands, ASX code AB1. Hi Yet, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, maybe we'll just start with a brief overview of of AB1 and and maybe just a bit of background about um, or on yourself and, and how you got involved with the company. Sure. Uh, so I'm, you know, obviously uh, I was uh, one of the co-founders of Animoca Brands, but it was a very different business when we first started it. Uh, so you, I think the way to look at Animoca Brands now as of 14, 15 months ago is an entirely uh, sort of uh, different kind of company, still in the gaming sector, but very much focused on sort of mid-core and blockchain gaming. Uh, that's basically the main emphasis. Uh, and uh, my background, I mean, my first job was with Atari, something like over three decades ago. So I've been a long, long, long-term gamer, right? And I've been in the game industry for, for a little while. Uh, and uh, within our sort of team of people, uh, we also have a very strong sort of uh, management and directors that are involved who are all sort of experts in the gaming field, including people like Holly Liu, who co-founded Kabam, most famous for sort of, you know, um, Marvel's sort of champion of heroes, uh, that business she sold to NetMarvel for, you know, close to, well, actually more than a billion Australian dollars. Uh, and then Willem Tat, who is the uh, uh, former head of games of Rovio, which is obviously famous for Angry Birds. Uh, and then also involved in the business is Ed Fries, who is the co-founder of uh, Xbox and Microsoft Game Studios. So we have a, some, some sort of, we're very privileged to have some sort of leading minds in the gaming space involved with Animoca Brands. Um, and I myself have obviously, you know, above, uh, above and beyond gaming, have also been involved in the internet space. Uh, one of the earlier companies I built, uh, which is uh, Outblaze, uh, its messaging business was sold to IBM uh, some time ago, which became part of Lotus Notes. Uh, and uh, I also started Hong Kong's, uh, one of Hong Kong's very first internet service providers uh, back in the day called Hong Kong Online, now going really far back. <laughs> And so you are you based in Hong Kong most of the time, or where are you operating from? Well, I guess I'm based on a plane these days, but uh, but uh, Hong Kong is headquarters. Uh, but we have uh, you know major operations are now in Finland, Argentina, Vancouver. Um, so you know obviously we're all over the place uh, as a global business, and each of these areas are also quite important for what we do, uh, especially when you think about gaming, for instance. You know Finland. Is, is a key area because, you know, when you think about the world's best mobile game companies, they all, you know, many of them come from Finland. And so we kind of build our businesses where the talent is. It's a global business, but we have to go where the talent is and, and recruit from those places. So when we look at gaming, and, and we'll touch on the esports um, in, in a moment, but for listeners and for me, as, as I don't quite understand this yet, the difference between a blockchain game and or a blockchain mobile game and a normal game what what can the users experience and understand and and what as um, potential investors are we are we to know and understand about about that so the very most important thing to understand about a you can now have true digital ownership, right? So one of the challenges that every game has today is that you can play for fun and entertainment, but at the end of the day, you own nothing, right? So if 
for instance, uh, which, you know, like, let's take an example, like a famous game like Fortnite, right? Close to $3 billion uh, of revenue uh, last year. Uh, all of those were spent on skins and items for use in Fortnite. And many people will have spent thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars uh, on, on their items. What happens when Fortnite shuts down? Everything is gone, right? And this is the problem that happens to most games. Uh, because usually a game operator will shut down the game eventually because it's not profitable for them anymore or it doesn't make sense for them to run. And then all the people who have spent, you know, um, you know from a global industry standpoint, you know, the billions of dollars basically goes up in smoke. Right? And that is obviously something that we think is not very fair to the consumer uh, and is one of the few industries where that model still works, shall we say, because all games operate in a walled garden. Now, with blockchain game, because of the way that blockchain works, in the same way that you have permanence as a virtual currency, you can have permanence in digital items and objects that uh, can also be scarce and unique. And that means that if I had an item, but it was on the blockchain, even if the game were to shut down, I still at least own the item and could use it somewhere else, much like the real world. Uh, but what's also exciting is that when you design a game that is blockchain-based, then you design it with elements of scarcity instead of abundance. Right? So right now, uh, when I play a regular game, uh, I get a copy of it, which means I can manufacture this copy a billion times. Therefore, the item doesn't have much value because there's no scarcity. However, if I make an item and I put it on the blockchain, I can validate the fact that there's only 100 or 1,000, and I can trust that it's true because it's not centralized. Right? The game operator can't just simply say, let's go make 1,000 or 10,000 more of these items because people you know, are buying it for this kind of price. I can only make 100 because that's what I encoded on the blockchain. And what happens then is if I want to have that particular, call it weapon or item or clothing, uh, then I don't buy it from the game operator anymore. I buy it from the player. And so the consumer and player of the game himself or herself ends up becoming a participant in the economy where they can start potentially maybe even making money or selling it on to someone else or keeping it uh, and then pass it on uh, uh, to, to whoever they wish to in a sort of marketplace environment. And so that's kind of how we see the main difference. And we think every game in the world will eventually move in that direction and digital trading will be commonplace, which, by the way, is already happening in a kind of black market scenario. You know, when you go on eBay, you know, when you think of way back in 2005 when people were farming basically digital gold on World of Warcraft and selling them basically to players, that system actually existed. It was just kind of black market. And what blockchain enables to do uh, is uh, fac facilitate this in a sort of trusted uh, environment uh, where I can trust that this item is unique. Uh, and we think it's going to revolutionize, you know, digital items worldwide. So I guess for me, I, I grew up playing Alex the Kid and, and Double Dragon. So are you, are you saying that I have an axe in a game or, or a or a car or whatever it is, and I literally establish a digital ownership of that that I can then transfer into a game that might have uh, similar characters or, or similar operations in it? It may not even have similar operations, uh, but it's up to the game developer to see how they want to adopt it. But the short answer is yes, because that item is now permanent, right? It's, it's something that you own uh, and you can pass it on. And, uh, and whether it's the axe or the sword or the car, and, and what we believe in is that as time goes on, 
the items that you have collected or invested in or purchased over time, uh, those items become more valuable if you give it more utility. Right? So much like in the real world, when you think about, say, you know, a tennis racket that Roger Federer was playing with, even though it's banged up and used and probably more likely to break uh, because of the abuse than buying the same brand new racket from the store, Roger Federer's racket is more valuable because it has a history. Right? It's won a tournament with it. There's some provenance that's attached to it. Now, on blockchain, you can do exactly the same. You know, uh, you can have the gun, but it had 50 kills. Or you can have the sword that won the championship. Or it could be the spear that basically was owned by the number one player in the world. Right? That means basically the items themselves generate value, not just because of the utility, but because of the history. Uh, and also, sometimes in some cases, not just who owned it and what they did with it, but also who created it. Right? All these things matter. You see that already happening in the world today, right? I mean, who painted a picture matters greatly in the value of a price, right? Who, so, so these are the things that now is possible because digital scarcity is something that is real on blockchain and it simply, well, simply wasn't possible before blockchain came about. And so for these participants who may, may be playing the games, whether they're a 10-year-old or a, or a 50-year-old, would they be able to redeem these coins or, or credits to play another game? Would these would the ownership ha structure have to be from one company, or do you think these are transferable? You know, from EA Sports into into Thomas the Tank Engine playing that. Is it, where so, is the central repository yeah. for, for the ownership? So there is no. So the key thing to understand about blockchain is, of course, there is no central depository in the classic sense, right? Which means that. It's, uh, it's basically, um, you know, because it's on the blockchain, it's validated by every node that's out there. In short, um, nobody really owns it, and it's sort of, uh, sort of secure, much like the reason why you trust Bitcoin or Ethereum in terms of, you know, whether it's worth the amount of money that it is is one thing, but you know that when I send you a Bitcoin or an Ethereum uh, token, that it is the token that I'm receiving, because now with blockchain, I can transfer digital value peer-to-peer without an, sort of an intermediary that has to validate the trust. Right? That's kind of what we have currently uh, for most systems out there. Uh, so that means that I could sort of move it from one of our games like Crazy Kings into something like Thomas the Tank Engine. Now, whether that makes sense is a different thing. And it's up to the game developer to make that choice whether he wishes to adopt those items from another game into his or her own game. Uh, so the common question that people then have is, well, you know, if the game shuts down and, uh, you know, then why would I have use for these game items anyway? And so our point on this one is that it's not so much that there is use for that game if it shuts down, but that there's an, uh, other people who would make games utilizing these items. Going back to another example, say, my, you know, let's say, 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 going back to the Fortnite example, Fortnite had at last count 70 million players, right? who had spent last year, as I mentioned, roughly close to $3 billion on their items. Let's say for whatever unfortunate reason, Fortnite were to shut down, or even if it were not to shut down, um, but all the items were on the blockchain. How many game developers would use the Fortnite items in their own games if it was actually possible for them to do so? And we think it would be thousands, if not tens of thousands, because now I can basically access a Fortnite gaming community to come to my game because I offer utility to the assets that they have, right? It's a little bit like a classic supply and demand scenario. If suddenly everyone started buying tennis rackets, uh, you know, in the city of Melbourne, 
and you would have sort of you know high demand for people who'd like to use those tennis rackets, how many tennis courts might show up? Right? And then the thing is though that uh, you know when uh, you know, much in the virtual world especially, just because you have a tennis racket doesn't mean that you have to play tennis in the classic way. That's an expectation we might have. But what if someone comes and basically designs a new kind of tennis? What if they design a tennis that is basically, you know, in a smaller court or where you're sort of, you know, basically playing with six people instead of two people? That's up to the person who designs the game, right? The items themselves that you own can be used in 10 or 20 different ways. That's up to the creativity of the game designer. So when that happens, we think the value of the items will increase because the utility will go up. In a monetization standpoint, you're, we're discussing here, I guess, a, an open economy for sharing these between, but if it was an AB1 and, and EA Sports and the credits were going to be transferred between, I know you could probably settle that through Bitcoin or Ethereum, but will, what would be, there, there must have to be, if you're putting this into a closed circuit, that there'll be exchange in that monetization sense between the two parties, which is offline. So how does that work for the for my kid who you know buys five dollars of credits at the moment, and that's that's for for a game. But if you're swapping between games, where's that circuit lie? Okay, so first I think one important distinction is that when you think about non fungible tokens, so those are those digital items uh, that we're referring that are permanent on the blockchain. Uh, they you're not transferring the value. You could, but you don't have to. In other words. It's like me taking the digital sword into another game. I'm not actually swapping out the sort of the currencies. Uh, and if someone in that other game would like to then buy it for his sort of currency, that's that's up to the person who owns it to accept or not. Uh, because it's on the blockchain, there is no central depository or exchange. The marketplace uh, can be in our game, can be another game, or could be in an open marketplace like a Wax or an Open Sea. Uh, which is popular on the blockchain at the moment. So there is no restriction uh, in terms of who you can sell it to because it's kind of like a physical item in the same way that there's no restriction for me to sell, you know, uh, basically a cup that I made or I bought and I can put it on eBay or I can put it on Amazon and someone might buy it for me and I'll ship it to him. That's kind of the same mechanism just digitally uh, with blockchain mm. items. So there is no... I wonder... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, you go, yeah? No, go ahead. You had a question? Well, I, I mean, I'm just thinking if I if I had built up a brand in my sword or my car over years and then I'm that's denominated into some sort of coin which devalues and then that de devalues the asset I have, that would be quite frustrating. So do you think there will become a point where, you know, an EA Sports or an AB1 have their own, call it token or coin, Ah, um, which okay. is really pegged to you know whatever okay, so the underlying is. Yeah, so I think maybe important distinction here when we when uh, what I'm discussing is less around a cryptocurrency and more around um, the digital item themselves. So the item themselves could be staked in U.S. dollars through a stablecoin, could mm. be Bitcoin, could be Ethereum. We don't mind. And if let's say EA was to launch their own cryptocurrency and they wanted to back it against a value, say like a stable coin based on sort of US dollars or Australian dollars, they can do that, right? And then we could trade on, on that basis, that's okay. But the items themselves are permanent. Uh, and you know, the most popular standard right now is uh, something known as ERC721, which is basically Ethereum-based. Uh, and that's basically where we have so far made most of our NFTs, including our Formula One car. 
that we recently auctioned. Uh, and and that, that, that is basically what I own. I own that car, right? Like in, in, in our case, the Formula One car. So I sold it, I bought it, I own the car. And whether I race it in this racetrack or whether I race it in, uh, you know, keep it in my wallet or whether I do something else with it or trade it, that's entirely up to me. And whether a person pays me for it in Bitcoin, Ethereum, or a future cryptocurrency that is designed by a game company, that is entirely up to the owner of that non-fungible token, right? So it's not that the non-fungible token themselves gets devalued because the non-fungible token sits independent of the currency, right? Uh, it's a little bit like, well, I could buy, you know, that tennis racket in US dollars, in euros, or in, you know, Rwandan francs, right? It doesn't really matter, right? Mm. I can buy it in any currency I like, depending um, what I accept, right? It's um, it's certainly very interesting, and and this, you know, the digital record or the digital passport is is certainly in vogue at the moment. And, and as a parent uh, myself, where you you see your your children, and it, it didn't happen in my time. I mean, we didn't have the technology there, but they enjoy, and, and maybe this is a good segue yet into the esports. But they enjoy watching someone else play FIFA or Fortnite as as much almost as they do playing it. And so from from an eSports standard or even from from a, a blockchain standard, how would you reward the, the non-user but the, the supporter, the person who watches the games? What, what, what sort of interaction can you provide for them? Well, let me give you a few examples. And, and, and some of these are businesses that we're involved in. But let me give you some examples why we think this becomes really interesting because of blockchain. Right. So when we think about the parallel, a lot of people are drawing parallel of real sports and esports, which is appropriate. But there is a problem. Uh, and the problem is that in the digital world, so far, most of the digital content in games are based on the sort of, uh, sort of internet of information, which is basically the sort of you know, copy-paste culture, right? I give you these items, they're copied, they're not the originals. And what that means is that the items themselves therefore don't have value. So that, that's the reason why currently esports is somewhat limited through the media channels, uh, tournaments, and teams slash champions, right? That's kind of the main mediums that we're seeing in esports today. Because the other areas around it are difficult because, you know, I can't build an industry around the rest of that. In other words, there can't be a Nike or an Adidas or a Puma or whatever sort of third-party company built around virtual economies for games because there is no sort of um, um, object basis for it because there is no scarcity attached to it. There is no uniqueness attached to it, right? Um, so how do you build sort of a Nike business uh, in the virtual world for sort of, you know, uh, games? And that is where, you know, blockchain comes in because now I can have these swords and items that can be created not necessarily by the game company, but by someone else in the same way that Nike will make shoes for the real world, you can have companies emerge that make simply non-fungible tokens and items for people to use in those games. And I want to use those items because those items are not just super cool or interesting, but they also maybe provide additional utility for me in other games. And so we think the center around the virtual world in the future will be around the items that you own and games will utilize those items and therefore, the participation will become much broader because every item inside a game now has value. Right? The problem about all the games that we're competing in in esports 
you know, whether it's a Dota or whether it's a Fortnite or whether it's, you know, you know Apex Legends uh, um, or even versions of Minecraft, uh, there is no value inside the game, right? So it's a tournament, but the game itself is not having, it doesn't have a value statement. Whereas when I play sports, even though I'm playing a game of basketball, the shoes that I bought and the, and, 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 the, and the ball that I bought and the equipment that I have, right? And the headband that I'm wearing, that's all part of an industry that makes sports powerful, right? And that's missing in the gaming space. Uh, and with blockchain, you can now finally make that happen. So we think blockchain is what's going to sort of make esports become common and mainstream uh, in the way um, that sort of regular sports has become. And so at this point, a lot of the people who are in the esports are obviously of an age where they probably can be influenced or impacted. Uh, maybe that's debatable more than older people. But if you are behind an esports team or an academy, are we going to see physical presences set up where people can come and train with them? People can come and watch. You become like a member yeah. of you know Liverpool, and therefore that's the drive to go and buy the the sort of memorabilia behind that and also it's a chance for i guess an education portal where people can go and get digitally trained outside of the schooling system being part of that that new community because for children i mean that that want of acceptance is is pretty important and, and not all want to play physical sports so so can they find that in the online community in a physical space i guess is the question well, so first of all, I think there is, you know, certainly opportunities for physical space for community and, you know, training centers and so on. So that's definitely something that I think will augment uh, sort of uh, the industry. Uh, and so whether it's trainers, whether it's people watching videos and understanding and sort of chatting around it, for sure, right? Absolutely. Uh, but I think the, the, the thing that, um, you know, outside of the sort of, let's call it um, the sort of, you know, status, uh, there is the aspect of value uh, that I think needs to be considered. And, and right now the value is disproportionately held by a very small group of people in esports because of the issue of uh, sort of uh, ownership. So it's either the game company that benefits or maybe the top teams, right? Um, for the most part and the media, right? So the regular consumer, you know, why am I playing in this esports competition? What's in it for me? Well, yes, maybe I could win some money, maybe there's a tournament, maybe I'm pretty good. But at the end of the day, uh, it's hard to participate uh, sort of, you know, just on skills basis, because really esports is very much on the skills driven basis, right? Uh, and I think that's something, again, that uh, will end up um, sort of uh, needs to have something, you know, whether it's non-fungible tokens, but needs to have, you know, permanent items that have value. Because I think the other aspects, uh, when you think about, for instance, uh, the real world, uh, items that follow you over time as well have value too. So I could be, for instance, participating in esports, but not necessarily as a person who is a um, you know, great player, but I could be someone who can buy great items, or I could be someone who can trade them, or I could maybe lease them to champions, or I could do whatever, right? Uh, so there's, there's multiple ways um, in which you can sort of participate uh, in that environment. So I, I just think the whole thing will end up converging. And of course, the physical spaces will be necessary, uh, just to sort of evangelize. But I think in terms of scaling it, physical spaces have a limitation because it's physically limited, right? Why do games scale so much faster? Because of the fact that you're not restricted to a physical space. I can play in my home. I can play 
you know, in an office, I can play wherever I want, and I can basically bring in millions of people into an environment without having to worry about fitting them into a stadium. And I guess one of the things that, you know, that I immediately think about in this discussion is, is the experience of doing this. And it's one thing to, to sit at home and, and play a video game, and I understand that the ability to scale from there, but having the, the actual physical arena, whether it's 500 people or 50,000 people, you really start opening up the avenues for virtual reality or augmented reality and have really a user experience. I can imagine if, if you turn up to a stadium, there's people playing these games here, you can go into training here, you've, you know, it's, it's the modern millennial user. You're not going to probably be eating the, the hot dogs and beer. You're going to be having a different whole experience. And that I think is, is, really something what I could imagine taking my children to rather than going to the footy or to the rugby um, every weekend. So that'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they can deliver that experience through that virtual reality. I mean, if you can put on the goggles and sit there and get a, you know, a theme park kind of experience, it's pretty valuable and it's certainly something you can, you can imagine in the future happening. Yeah, uh, totally. And also one of the things that I think will be an interesting challenge in the future to consider is what happens when your children make more money than you because of the virtual world, right? Um, because when you think about the amount of money that some of those prize monies for esports are beginning to have, and especially when you think about sort of the value of digital items, uh, and so an example, for instance, I'm um, not sure if you were aware, but when we auctioned our first Formula One car, it was sold for 415 ETH. It was, it's over 110,000 US dollars. That's roughly 160,000 Australian dollars for a virtual car, right? Um, and people, you know, when they were trading CryptoKitties, uh, they were sort of trading, you know, in the first first periods when it launched, you know, 25 million US dollars worth, over 3 million transactions. Um, and the participants were breeding these kitties and making money, thousands of US dollars, or in some cases, tens of thousands of US dollars breeding and selling these kitties. And, uh, you know, these are activities that, let's call it, um, you know, maybe slightly older people might have initial challenges with. I mean, in the same sense that the chances of you perhaps beating your child in a game of Fortnite or a sort of competitive game of Minecraft is probably low, right, to maybe even nil, wow. right? And in, that, in, and in that environment, what does it mean for you as a parent who had traditionally had a physical age advantage, you know, power advantage just because of the classic sort of rules of engagement being sort of the hierarchy of parenting and, you know, sort of. Uh, yeah, I've got the credit card advantage. So, so how, does, how do you work that? And even though your market might be these young children, you've still got to appeal in a way enough to me that I'm going to allow this to be played. So what's, what's the sort of pitch there to build well, this think, ecosystem out? Look, I think the big pitch to me is, uh, uh, and I think there's a couple, couple, couple of things here, but the main thing pitch to me is that if you know that you're, whether it's a parent or even yourself, that you're investing in an item that could have value and is permanence, you're more likely to be willing to invest and spend uh, in it even for your own child, right? So if, if, you, if, you, if your child said, you know what, uh, I want to go spend $100 US dollars on um, sort of these items that were permanent as opposed to frivolous in the sense where they disappeared, you may be more persuaded to do so because you know that these items could be sold or could be traded on, right? 
one of the things that the, our industry has, right? So the gaming industry is $138 billion industry last year, right? $70 billion of that came from freemium purchases, uh, which is basically, the, you know, games where people basically sort of pay for free and a small percentage will convert. That conversion rate is less than 3%. Right? It's typically one, two, and in great cases, 3% conversion, which means we're sitting in an industry where 97 plus percent don't pay a single dime to the game company and is supported by just the you know, one to 3%, which means if you can increase the uh, conversion rate by just a single percentage, you're talking about a 25 billion US dollar increase in market. And so we believe that when you know that the items you're purchasing have true value because they have true permanence, cannot be deleted, could maybe even be an investment product, or at minimum could be sold on, you know, for to someone else for recovery of some cash if he was joining that game or had utility in another game. Then we think people will be more willing to spend on it, and we think the conversion rate won't just be an additional one or two percent, but it'll be like a ten or twenty percent conversion rate. Right? Uh, you know, I mean, how old are your children? Six, four, and, and two. Okay, so quite young, right? But uh, yeah. you know, um, but if your child, whether he's like maybe six, seven, eight, or something in the future or whatever, came to you and you know he wanted to basically um, buy, let's take a real world analogy, Magic the Gathering cards, right? Which are not cheap, right? Some of these Magic the Gathering cards and collectibles um, will end up, you know, for initial packs, will be hundreds of US dollars. We're not talking about you know you know, $2 or $5 a type of game, right? Um, but those Magic the Gathering cards have value. They trade, right? They have collectible status. They're, you know, they're part of that sort of massive collectible industry, which is like a $370 billion industry. And that, that if, if, if he came to you and said, I wanted to buy $100 US dollars worth of Magic the Gathering cards uh, so I can buy and trade with my friends, um, would you be willing to give him that versus, you know, $100 for Fortnite? Mm. Yeah, no, it's certainly interesting. And, and just even the market lessons that you're teaching them about whether a, a product or any asset that you're, you're looking at is going to devalue potentially in the future and what's the confidence of investors behind it. I mean, that's the, the cornerstone of, of everything really. And, and this is a product or can be a product that you really don't have that natural deterioration of it unless obviously the, the game, I guess, becomes unloved. But um, so I guess I won't keep you too long yet because I've already taken probably too much of your time, but just back on an AV1 perspective here. So you've got yes. all these different different verticals under you and, and we've sort of just talked, I guess, more on a, a, a macro sense of what's happening, but can you just paint I guess, a vision for our listeners of these channels that you have and, and what you know you want them to grow to into the future? So um, Animoca Brands is at this point really at a, at a situation where we have early leadership in blockchain gaming, right? And we do have a traditional mobile games business driven by titles such as Crazy Kings and Crazy Defense Heroes. Uh, and that is the business that drove most of our revenues last year, which was approximately sort of, I think it was uh, 12 point something million dollars of revenue last year, uh, up from like 6 million the year before. Uh, and we also have a media business, which generates roughly the same amount of business. We have some contracts. So I think that um, based on what we had already presented uh, or what we had presented um, to, to our uh, investors, 
uh, you can basically uh, sort of calculate roughly what that you know that our revenues for the classical business, which is the media and the gaming business, non-blockchain, um, is going to increase um, you know fairly significantly uh, for 2019. But the area of business that we want to be uh, sort of complete market leaders in uh, is in the area of blockchain gaming. And when you think about some of the recent moves we've done, which is the Formula One license deal where we auctioned our first car for well over 100,000 US dollars, or when we just recently closed the Sandbox, which is basically our Minecraft on the blockchain game, and we just sold um, sort, of, um, sort of through a safe and token deal, uh, 3.6 million um, Australian dollars worth of tokens just a few weeks ago. Uh, and the release is obviously also on, on, on our website. Uh, you can probably paint a picture of where we want the business to grow. Uh, and many of the moves we've done, whether it's uh, investments in Lucid Site, which recently sort of, uh, which is, does the Major League Baseball um, crypto game, but also recently inked a deal with um, Star Trek to basically bring Star Trek um, sort of uh, ships into their space game, uh, or companies like Experimental, which has a very popular um, uh, blockchain-based game. Uh, we're basically uh, partnering and investing and growing and publishing all of these uh, so that we can become a market leader in this space. And I would say today, when you think in blockchain gaming space, uh, we are, if not one of the top, maybe perhaps even the number one blockchain-based gaming company. That is to say, of course, it's early days. Therefore, we are still relatively small. Uh, and I see the market like smartphone 2010, 2011. Right? Back then, uh, there were, it was a small, relatively sort of nimble companies that ended up becoming the market leaders uh, in the future. And it's the incumbents uh, who were the large companies who you know, had a classic innovative dilemma and struggled to sort of find their way with mobile smartphone. And we think uh, that opportunity now exists with blockchain-based gaming. We think true digital ownership is going to revolutionize the game industry because given the choice for a player consumer, we think you would always choose to play the game where you owned everything as opposed to playing the game or you own nothing, especially if it's for the same amount of money. Um, and therefore, you know, we are at this pivotal point where we think we're sort of early in this position where we can have market leadership, and that is basically where Animoca Brands is positioning itself. So hopefully, if we have this chat a year from now, you know, our classic gaming business will be a nice business, but our blockchain gaming business is going to be what we're really known for. Well, I mean, we'd love to have you back on because a lot of this, you know, went over my head pretty quickly, but um, it was fascinating to hear about this development and it, it is, as you said, it's so new and and I guess, well, maybe not misunderstood, but not understood yet. And, and certainly it would be interesting to have an Australian company hopefully leading the charge in it and one that we can uh, follow your progress online. But appreciate you stopping in today, yet, and um, I wish you all the best. And, yeah, hopefully we'll get you back on again soon. Thank you so much. Subi and Subi's associates may hold a position in the stock before, during, or after this podcast. This podcast is not paid for and has been prepared purely for educational purposes only. Information contained within this podcast should not be regarded as personal or investment advice.